You're listening to the Beach Haven Podcast. Today's message is the third in our series titled, Jesus on Every Page. Without further ado, our lead pastor, Rob Timms. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles or your flip in your phone to Genesis chapter 6. Uh, we're going to take a look at uh, those, those verses today that we've just read. Um, verses 5 through 13. We are week three into our series entitled Jesus on Every Page, and we're going to great lengths to illustrate and demonstrate how from the very beginning, Jesus was the plan. Jesus was the plan from creation. We can see him, the power of the eternal living word that spoke creation into being speaks life into us by grace through faith. And in the fall, even as, even as we rebelled and revolted, God provided the first sacrifice. God clothed those who had re- rebelled and revolted against him, which he ultimately did through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And now as we continue through the story in Genesis, we come to the story of Noah in verses, and the flood in uh, verses, uh, chapter six, seven, and eight, and I think even none, if I remember correctly. Um, Thinking about judging reminded me of the story. I have a, a good friend who's uh, uh, just a few years ago, his wife was, um, they had moved from the East Coast, uh, to Eastern time zone. They had moved over into the central time zone in the Nashville area where we used to live. And be- because of that move, even though they're, of course their phones and their smartwatches and all that had updated, inside their vehicles, the clock stayed on Eastern time, even though they had moved to Central time. Figuring out how to change the clock inside a car should be simpler than it is. I don't know if that's just my car, but in this particular case for them, they just kind of left it on Eastern time, even though they were living in Central time. And my friend's wife had two young children in the, in the, in the van when she was driving and she was also pregnant with her third child. And so the move and the craziness of things going on in the back and the, and the you know, kind of the pregnancy brain kind of stuff that happens sometimes when, when women are, are pregnant, you know, it was just kind of a chaotic moment and things going on in the van and lots of scatteredness. And so as my friend's wife turned into the neighborhood of her, of their, of their uh, new home there, and she went through a school zone and she noticed as she went through the school zone that the lights were flashing, school zone, slow, caution, 15 miles an hour. You know how it is in a school zone. And she looked at the clock in her van and the clock said 4.30 p.m. And so she thought to herself, huh, I wonder why the lights are flashing school zone at 4.30 in the afternoon. It must just be left over from all the things that, you know, happened at 3.30 this afternoon. But no sooner did she go through the school zone at 35, 40 miles an hour, than did a police officer come in right behind her to remind her why the lights were flashing at 15 miles an hour in the school zone because it wasn't 4.30, it was 3.30 in real life. And so she was given a ticket and she was called to come into court to stand before the judge. Now, if you're like me, um, or if you're like this, this, uh, this woman, you have all kinds of great things to say to the judge to justify yourself, right? Your honor, 
I've never gotten a speeding ticket before in my life. Um, this is the first time and it was totally an accident. You see, we just moved here. I'm new to the community and my, my van was still on 4.30 Eastern time zone, not on 3.30. The kids were screaming in the back. I've got pregnancy brain. I don't even really know how I got here today. Like you have all the things that go on where you justify yourself before the judge. And they planned this little speech that she would give to kind of get out from underneath this speeding ticket only to find that when when you stand before a judge, the judge doesn't give you an opportunity to explain yourself and how you could be justified in not receiving the ticket. The judge asks one question, how do you plea? Guilty or not guilty? You, you, you don't get to say, well, it's complicated, right? You don't get to that opportunity. You can only answer guilty or not guilty to which my friend's wife said, guilty because even though she had all these extenuating circumstances that make all of it sound pretty good the fact of the matter is she was still guilty as charged none of us like to be in that position of being judged have you been judged before have you been guilty like that before where you had no other opportunity other than to say yes I did or no I didn't that's a very uncomfortable position to be in a far better position to be in is one in which you get to judge other people. That's way more fun. I really like being in that position. I also like being in a position where I'm on the couch and nobody else is around and I get to watch television alone because I'm introverted and that's like bliss. Books and television, nobody around, awesome. I love that. And when I'm there, do you, have you noticed how many judging television shows we watch? Have you noticed through your Netflix or through your Hulu or, or through your other streaming apps, how many judging television shows that you watch? Master Chef, Hell's Kitchen, Is It Cake? Is It Cake? Survivor, Shark Tank, Ink Master, Top Model, The Great British Bake Off. These are things, I'm not saying I watch all of these things, right? I'm just sure these are things that you guys watch, right? Or maybe you're judging me for this list of things that I've even mentioned right now. Dancing with the Stars. We, man, there's so much judgmental television that's out there. We love judge. We love to judge. We love watching people being judged, but we do not like when we are the ones being judged. One of the things that I mentioned last week in our account from Genesis chapter three is that the very first doctrine of God that was refuted, that was rejected in the Bible was the doctrine of God as judge. The serpent said, you, you won't die if you eat of the fruit. In other words, God's not a judge. He won't hold you accountable. That's the first thing that we removed. And if you remove God as judge, if you remove God as judge, if you conclude that he's not holy, if you conclude that he isn't gonna hold you accountable for anything that you do wrong, then you are then in that moment, absolutely free to do whatever you want. And there won't be any repercussions as far as you're concerned because there's no judge. There's no one there to hold you accountable. Therefore, if you keep reading in Genesis chapter four and five and six and so on, you'll see that's exactly what happened. In chapter four, Cain kills his brother Abel. Later on, Lamech, not, not Noah's dad, but the first Lamech, he turns into an absolute psychopath. It just gets worse and worse and worse. There's evidence mounting up that we as rejecting God as drudge have fleet, gotten away from him. And we do whatever we want because we don't think we'll be held accountable for it. And then comes Genesis 6. Genesis 6 
does three things extraordinarily well for you and I, and they are also remarkably practical once you start putting them into place. I want to touch on three things. First thing I want to touch on today is the nature of man, the corruption that take, has taken place. So we need to touch into that just a little bit deeper because that's what the text does. The second thing we need to do is examine the nature and the character of God. Because we learn more and more deeply about the nature and the character of God. In the same way that we saw him cover Adam and Eve, he's doing something similar in the flood. Which leads us to the third thing. I want to talk about the relationship between salvation and judgment. I want to talk about the relationship of truth and love. And I want to drive that home for you in a very practical way this morning. So first, let's look at the corruption of Man, let's talk about the corruption, the violence and the evil that the Lord saw in Genesis chapter six is your and mine's natural state. Look at verse five and then also verses 11 through 12. The Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Now the earth was corrupt, skipping to verse 11, in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Boy, did you feel all the superlatives and all the repetition? What's the point, right? There is, there is both widespread wickedness and widespread corruption. And if you're wondering just what God thought about the state of our world, right, there are two words that are repeated, not to mention the superlatives that are worked through this text, but there are two words that are used to emphasize for you and I just how bad things really were. Um, you see the word wickedness here at the, um, at the top, and you see it here again in verse 11. This is a generic Hebrew word that would be used um, to describe any kind of problem. So a physical problem, a psychological problem, a medical problem, a social problem, a geopolitical problem, and on. This is a word that conveys the idea that literally everything is wrong. Every wickedness means everything. Everything's been touched. There is nothing that's not been touched. It's an emphasis on the breadth of sin in the world as a result of the fall. But then you also have this word corrupt, right? The earth was corrupt in God's sight. And God saw how corrupt the earth was for they had corrupted their way on the earth. Like he uses the word three times. And that's not a word that talks about breadth. That's a word that emphasizes depth, right? It's talking about the effects, the depth of the effect of sin had become on everything that it had touched. So here's what you need to understand about the nature of human corruption as a result from the fall just a dozen or so generations after Adam and Eve. It was not a mile wide and an inch deep. It wasn't a mile deep and an inch wide. It was miles deep and miles wide. Fully wicked, everything touched and everything corrupt all the way through its core. That is how we were relating to one another and to the Lord. Miles deep, miles wide, okay? Now, how will the Lord respond in Noah's day? Look at verses six through eight. And then also we're gonna skip down to verse 13. What's the Lord's response? The Lord regretted, underline that, regretted that he had made man on the earth. And he was, oh, here's another, deeply grieved. 
Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Notice the relationship, notice the motivation. Regretted, deeply grieved, regretted. So then from a place of grief, from a place of regret, I'm gonna wipe mankind who created it. But Noah, however, found favor with the Lord and skip ahead to verse 13. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with all the earth. So here's what I want you to notice about the nature of the character of God, right? You have this divine judge, you have this divine evaluator, this, this arbiter and who is perfectly holy and has made everything that has revolted and rebelled against him. And you have this truly accurate and terrible assessment of the wickedness and the corruption in the people of the earth, which means judgment is inevitable. He's going to judge. There are going to be consequences associated with our rebellion. So the thing that really surprises is not the fact that God has said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna judge human beings. I'm gonna judge the earth. What's amazing about this text is that what we learn about the character of God is not, he's not coming from a place of wrath. He's not coming from a place of anger. God's not ticked. He's heartbroken. He's experiencing grief. He's experiencing regret. His heart hurts. Our sin hurts God's heart. Like it just, it breaks him. It's a pain that like a, like a parent feels when their children go off the rails in rebellion, it hurts their heart. And likewise, our sin deeply, deeply filled God with the pain of Grief, deeply grieves what the text said. So even though you have this wickedness and this corruption that's miles deep and miles wide, God is not said to be enraged. The flood is not motivated by some angry God who's just trying to fix everything and I'll show you. That's not, that's not his attitude. It's an attitude of pain. It's an attitude of grief. He's not enraged. He's heartbroken. Guys, God is sorrowful in this moment. And I hope you kind of understand a little bit better and kind of feel the weight of all of this about how God is approaching you and I in this passage. I want you to read Isaiah 49, 15. This is where God is speaking later to a remnant of Israel who's feeling very judged as a result of being a remnant. And this is what he says to them. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb. And that's a, it's a really powerful image, isn't it? It's a, a pregnant woman, seven, eight, nine months along, feeling all of the life teeming around, moving around inside of her, all the emotions and, and feelings that that evokes in a mother or nursing mother right, with, with all of the, 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 the bonding and the love and the affection that, uh, that a mother would feel and always does feel when they, are, when they are literally providing life for this newborn that they have. That's the image that God wants to evoke. Like, who, 
What kind of mother would stop loving a child when that's their bond? What kind of mother would, would, would not have compassion for the one in her womb? And God says, even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. That's a really powerful image, right? Even the love that a woman has for her nursing child, even a love that a woman has for her baby yet to be born, even that kind of love, which is remarkably strong and remarkably powerful, even that, I love you more than that. My love for you is stronger than that, which explains for you and I, when he looks at the depth of the wickedness and the, and the width and the, the breadth of the, of the wickedness of this world, he's not enraged. He's not wrathful. He is heartbroken. And heartbroken still leads to judgment but it also is a position of love, right? Your heart breaks because you love someone, but your heart also breaks because you know that truth has to stand. Your heart breaks because you love them, but your heart also breaks because you know that they're hurting themselves and there has to be a cost. There has to be truth in with the love. So do you feel the tension? We have this infinitely holy God and infinitely loving God. That's what you have in him. He's made that very clear in Genesis 3, 4, and, and 5. He's, he's infinitely holy and he's infinitely loving. So how's he going to respond to this profound corruption? How's he going to respond to this endless wickedness? Do you feel that tension? Because you should feel that tension. This is a similar tension to that which a judge feels when he or she is bound to the law and yet is sympathetic to the people that she's judging. There is nothing wrong with you, nothing inconsistent. There's nothing missing in your thinking. If you simultaneously understand that God is holy and has to judge sin, and yet you're also bothered by it because you know that God loves. And the reason I know that there's nothing wrong with you for that feeling and tension is because right here in the text, that's God's feeling. God had a feeling, he had grief he had regret and he feels more strongly and accurately and acutely than you and I ever will because he is truly holy and he is truly right and he truly loves right here in this text God is looking at the the, the profound breadth of the wickedness of this world and the profound depth of the corruption of sin in this world and he responds with grief in other words don't miss this God is suffering for the sins of the world, even as he's preparing to judge it. He's suffering for the sins of the world, even as he's preparing to judge it. So what does God do? Well, if you've read the rest of the story, which Bible reading plan will keep you up to date as we go, if you keep coming back every Sunday, if you read the flood through Genesis 6, 7, and 8, um, it points us to the answer. The flood that destroys the earth and all human life. The flood is not God's ultimate solution for our sin and his holiness and it love, but it does point us to the place where it's going to actually be. The flood is salvation through judgment. 
That's what the flood is. It is salvation through judgment. You say, well, Pastor Rob, how so? I just want you to think about the story. So God puts Noah and his family and all of the different animals into the ark and eventually the waters of judgment come, right? They come from the deep and they come from the sky and the earth is flooded. And in the flood, human violence and corruption are judged, right? They're all wiped out. They are removed from the face of the earth. Their sin is judged. All their violence, all their wickedness, all their corruption is judged. So the death of humanity in this moment brings an end to all of humanity's sin. Nobody can do it anymore because nobody is alive. And so all of humanity's sin has come to an end, but at the exact same time, so there's judgment, but at the exact same time, in the judgment of the world, Jesus, the Lord is also giving another chance to the world because the same act that judged the world is the lifted Noah and his family up in God's provision of the ark. The very judgment of human's sin was also the salvation of some's sin. Right there, you see it? The very same waters that judged the earth were also the waters that saved the earth. The judgment cleansed the earth, but the judgment also saved some. So the salvation is through judgment. The flood is salvation through judgment. Now, how'd that work? How's that? How effective was that? Well, if you keep reading Genesis 6, 7, 8, not too good. It didn't go too well, right? Because also in the flood with Noah, also in the flood with his family, also, also in the ark, excuse me, with, with, his, with his family, also in the ark with the animals was one other thing. Sin. Sin was in the ark because there were human beings in the ark. And so no sooner does the, 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 the judgment end and Noah and his family find themselves on, uh, on, a, on, on a new ground. They're starting over. And they begin doing life and they start over and they start over. And one of the things that Noah does is he, he plants a vineyard. He didn't forget how to do that. And he plants a vineyard and he grows some grapes and he makes wine. And what happens? He gets hammered. That's what happens. And as a result, there is an incident between he and his son and it blows up the whole family and sin re-enters. Not not just in that moment, it was already present, but we see that it didn't last long. That even though there was judgment and there was salvation for them through the judgment, it did not permanently solve the problem, right? So the flood wasn't the permanent solution. But it does point us to the permanent solution because it was a salvation through judgment. And if you keep reading the Old Testament, you see this time and time and time again. Salvation through judgment, salvation through judgment, salvation through judgment. God saved humanity by judging it at the Tower of Babel. There was salvation through their judgment. There's a remnant that's saved in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a, um, God saved Israelites from the angel of death when the angel of death came and took the firstborn of all the Egyptians in judgment. God saved a generation of Israelites and he allowed them to enter into the promised land even though he judged the generation before them and, and allowed them to die in the wilderness. God saved a remnant of Jews who were in exile even as he judged them through the Assyrian and Babylonian capture. Do you see? Salvation and judgment. Salvation and judgment. Salvation and judgment. And all of these acts of salvation through judgment were ultimately ineffective, but they all pointed to the one place, the one place in human history where God himself would truly 
suffer for the sins of his creation and save them through judgment once and for all. And that's in his life and that's in the death and that's in the resurrection of Jesus. It was on a cross where God truly suffered for our sin and where truth and love were both satisfied. You say, well, how does that work? Well, here's the way it works. Jesus in his life was actually perfect. Read the gospels. It's pretty amazing. We, if we could all have lived like that, none of this would have had to have been done, but he actually lived a perfect life. And yet he was killed. And it was, a, it was an egregious, it was completely unjust. It was, a, it was all a farce. It should have never happened because he didn't deserve it. And yet at the same time, it was God's strategic plan for judgment to to, to be had on behalf of those who would believe in God and what he had done in the person of Jesus. This is what Paul means. This is what Paul means in Romans 8 verses 1. There's now no condemnation for those of you who believe in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf because you don't have any condemnation. You don't have any judgment. Why? Because God judged Jesus for you. He put the sin of the past Romans chapter three, and he put the sin of the present and he put the sin of the future and he put it on his son, Jesus. And if you will believe in it and you will trust in it, then you have salvation through Jesus's judgment. You're right with God because of the judgment that was placed on his own son, where God himself truly suffered for your sin. Can you believe this? Salvation through judgment, salvation through judgment, salvation through judgment over and over and over again. So folks, do you see God has acted once and for all to save us through judgment, not a flood, not fire and brimstone, not 40 years of exposure in the wilderness, not an exile. Once and for all, he's done it in the person of Jesus. Now, if you will take this reality that you have salvation through judgment, that you have truth and love combined in the person of Jesus and that that defines your relationship. If you will take that reality, insert it between you and your relationship with God and you and your relationship with other people, it will absolutely transform you. Of course, as I said in Romans 8, 1, it completely transforms your relationship with God. But also, now let's make this really practical. I have truth and I have love in the person of Jesus. I have truth, I have, I have salvation through judgment. I have truth, I have love. Okay, how do I relate to other people? Answer, truth and love. This is what Paul means in Ephesians 4.15. He says, I, I want you to speak the truth in love. Like think about how the good news of salvation through judgment transforms your relationships because now you are in a position to be truthful and loving at the same time. And this is tricky. Not tricky because it's complicated, tricky because it's hard. It's really simple and it is really hard. Because here's what happens. If you only speak the truth, if you're only judgmental, if you're only bringing truth bombs, but never any relationship, never any love with the person that you're speaking to, then you're gonna have a few awkward or even angry interactions with people, but you're not gonna have any real relationships because you won't be friends with anybody who doesn't think like you. If you're all about truth, 
but you've got little to no love for anybody. If you're all about bringing the word and the truth, but you don't actually love or enter into a relationship with that same person that you're bringing the truth to bear on, you're gonna have a few cantankerous moments, but for the most part, your life will be really easy because you won't be in a relationship with anybody that costs you anything. You only have friends with people who think like you do. No, the opposite is true. Let's say that you're just a person of love. Everybody loves to get along with you. Um, you, you. You have lots of love, but you don't really speak about the truth. You can be happy with everyone and you're never gonna contradict them or disagree with them. You're never gonna confront them, right? You also, if that's your nature, you also are not gonna have a lot of pain in your life because truth will never have a chance to change someone's life. You'll love them You'll be able to be with them, but you'll end up standing for nothing. And you also won't have any really outstanding relationships. You won't have any suffering. You won't have any pain in your life because no one else's life will be changed because you're not bringing any truth to bear with it because the gospel is truth and love. The gospel is judgment and salvation. It's salvation through judgment. It's love through truth. It's truth in love. That's the gospel. And if you bring the gospel to bear in your relationship, you're not only speaking truth, you are always loving. And you're not only loving, you are always speaking truth. Do you understand? To the degree that you're like God, to the degree that you're like Jesus, to the degree that you're committed to both truth and love, like I said, it was simple, but it's hard. Salvation through judgment that's a hard place to live. Truth and love, that's a hard place to live. And there's, you're always in a bit of suffering alongside. You're always in compassion with, suffering with the people in your relationships because you were always having either to speak truth or love people with the truth. And it's very hard. Be, actually being a Christian is hard because you're bringing the truth of salvation and judgment to bear in your relationships with one another. Do you see? Do you see the power? Do you see the transformational power of the gospel of salvation through judgment? Do you see that sin breaks the heart of God and that he's going to judge the heart of God? But do you see that God loves you and he does the truth and the love in one act in the person of Jesus and that believing that transforms your relationship with God and bringing that reality to bear on your relationships with other people helps you to speak truth in love. You see? I hope you do. Can I, can I pray for you?